Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. This is the Oak Shea Podcast. This is Dan the Fitness Man. Stoked because this is episode number 100. Ridiculous. We didn't start this podcast very long ago. We tried to be consistent on releasing weekly content that's relevant, that's new, that's hip, that's fresh, that actually pertains to you public land, DIY, Walmart tag buying, brethren, sistren. I appreciate you guys. You have a lot of options on podcasts and we recognize that. So thank you for listening and being faithful to our message of delayed gratification and discipline and leveraging elk hunting to create the best possible version of yourself. Today we're bringing on Mike Dorning out of Idaho. He is literally a dream come true when it comes to guests because he, he fits the mold of literally a blue collar dude, underground miner in Nevada works seven days on and gets seven days off, balances three kids and a wife and that are very supportive of his hunting habit. He's really a badass elk hunter and he's done really well for himself since he started solo elk hunting and we dive deep into all that good stuff. So I'm not going to stretch this out. Thanks Mike for coming on. You guys are going to enjoy that. Shout outs to the following individuals that got not only their name in the hat by just giving us a five-star iTunes review, but doing it really fast. And we are, check your mailboxes. We're sending some swag packages to Jason from Grayson, Georgia. Colby from Moses Lake, Washington. JJ from Lewiston, Idaho. Dan from Issaquah, Washington. And Tyler from Idaho Falls. Thank you guys. I appreciate that. We have a Black Friday sale. If you get the Elk Shape Podcast hoodie, you're going to get 21 days to Elk Shape free. That sale will expire at the end of the month. Also, early bird registration for the Spokane Elk Shape Camp expires 11-30-2019. Discount code is FLASH, all caps. You get $100 off, and that camp is stacked with, obviously, my, my archery coach, Josh Jones, the financial advisor, uh, Jeff Bynum. We got Joel Turner from Shot IQ and Elk Calling, Ryan Lampers, the mule deer machine, all those guys 
are going to be at the Camp 3.0. Following that in, we got Oregon. Registration's open for that, right into two Texas camps. Registration is live for both of those. Then we get to go up to Wisconsin. Yay, that registration is finally open. I anticipate that to be the fastest selling camp just because Wisconsin people, you Wiscos, are crazy dedicated. And I'm working on getting Jason Phelps to come to that camp. Then we got the Denver camp with none other Aaron Snyder, The Bugler, Phil Mendoza, Graydon's going to be there. It's going to be, that camp is stacked, and then we finish strong in Vancouver, Washington, and that's a wrap for 2020, already planning 2021. Get to a camp. I will tell you this. This is the last thing I'm going to say about camps. If you invest in Elk Shape Camp online, you will get access to all the videos we created from the first two camps. That's a year subscription plus some bonus material. And what we're going to do is every workout program that I create starting in 2020, we're going to include that as part of your subscription. So you don't have to buy anything a la carte. And when you sign up for online Elk Shape Camp, you get a discount code for any live Elk Shape Camps that takes 17.5% off registration fees. So I'm building a lot of value around the online version of Elk Shape Camp. My goal is to make that basically the most badass interactive video platform, private videos for you to watch with a year subscription. So if that interests you, take some action. Now, without further ado, let's get to the podcast. 100th episode, dropping it now. Thanks for tuning in. Let's roll. Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man, bringing on Mike Dorning out of Idaho Falls. I've never actually talked to him before, but I do know he's an ordinary family guy who has extraordinary backcountry elk hunting success. I'm excited to learn from him. I know he's a family first guy, and you can follow him on Instagram. I believe it's Dorning underscore grind. Mike, how are you, man? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. My honor. So let's chat. Let's let's get to know you, brother. Like, give me the lowdown. What's your All things uh... elk hunting? <laughs> Two hundred ninety-one days. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna get along good. So, what's your story, man? Like, you, you live in Idaho Falls. What do you do? Yep. Well, I um, underground miner. I work in Nevada, northern Nevada. Uh, I grew up there hunting. Started, you know, just like most guys, just following my dad around. And then got into the, uh, you know, Nevada's a little different. Can't really get an elk tag all that often. So when you do go with elk hunting, you're with a big group of guys. Right. And started buying uh, Idaho tags and got hooked. Came Was coming up to Idaho every year, getting two non-resident tags every year. And decided if I moved up here, it'd be a little cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Minus the income tax, right? Yeah. Yeah, that part. But, uh, okay, so where in northern Nevada are you mining? Uh, I'm working out of, uh, like, the Elko area right now. And have you ever had a tag near that area for elk? Yep. Yeah, I drew my Nevada tag in 2011. Holy smoke. So coming off Nevada 2018, I got to tell you, that state is special, man. Yep, yep. There's some, there's some true giants there. It is so fun hunting desert bulls. I mean, it really is. Well, tell let's we'll, we're going to circle back to that. I got to hear that story, but... Uh, you're married, you have kids, give us the lowdown, how old you are and all that kind of stuff. Um, 30, well, I'll be 36 next month. Uh, I got three kids, uh, boy, girl, boy, 11, nine and seven. And I've been married now for 12 years. And my wife is big into fitness and not big into hunting at all. Oh, but she likes, likes eating elk meat. So I got that going for me. Oh, so we have the exact same wife, like yep. super fit, athletic, and 
could care less about hunting. Oh, However, yeah. organic meat doesn't hurt their feelings. Not at all. She loves the meat, just doesn't want anything to do with getting it into the freezer. That's great. Okay. And so how your kids, your oldest is 11? Yep. So you're taking them all hunting now? Yep, yep. He uh, he started hunting the, this time last year and got a cow elk, and then he just shot his first muley buck uh, about two weeks ago. That's outstanding. So he's hooked. Um, are all the kids into it or just some? Uh, my oldest boy is, my daughter's not, she's going to pretty much, pretty sure following in her mom's footsteps. And then my oldest boy, he's got two or three more years, but he's already, already want, knows everything. Can tell you everything. He thinks he knows it all. He says he's going to be the greatest. Well, let's, uh, let's hope that's hap- how it happens. Now, when you're working in Nevada, how does that work with family life and balancing? Like what's your work schedule? Yeah, I work seven on, seven off. So I'm I'm gone for a whole week, and I come back here for a whole week, and then September gets a little crazy. So yeah, like on paper, that sounds badass, but I could just see myself like working seven days, getting home, pretty worn out, and being like, well, I'm going hunting, and wife's just like, uh, so I guess I'll see you in a month. You know, if you yeah. add up those yep. stretches, how does that work? Yeah, well, so... Well, you got to get all your family stuff done way in advance. And she knows now, you know, 12 Septembers, I go to work for a week and then I go straight from work. Like if I get off day shifts, I drive nine hours all the way up to elk camp. And so I haven't went home. So I've been gone for seven days. I go straight to elk camp and I'm at elk camp for 21 days. And then I go straight from elk camp back to work again for another week and then come home. So I won't come home for five weeks in September. Okay. So your wife is super understanding now. You said underground miner. Uh, tell me about that. I know nothing. Um, pretty much looks like uh, the way I describe it, it's kind of like an ant farm. You just were going down into a, you know the bottom of a big mining pit. We go down in a, a portal. So you just start a hole right in the side of this wall and you just start going down 15 by 15 foot drift, just going wherever the gold is. Wow. And you, that's just what you know. That's how long have you done that? Uh, this year I'll be going on 17 years doing that. Okay, cool. So you, you got an early start. That's your career. What's your game plan for that? Are you going to be doing that until you retire? Oh, I hope not, but nothing, nothing in the near future is going to change it. It's hard to beat that schedule for hunting. No doubt. And obviously you probably paid pretty good for going underground. I would hope so. And, and honestly, like, do you work with cool people? I mean, are the guys that you work with and gals, are they legit? Um, are you solo? What's that like? Uh, yeah, I work on a crew, and it, you get all variations of people. Round mm-hmm. ones, skinny ones, tall ones. Some like hunting, some don't like hunting. And what about your guys' uh, accommodations? Are you pulling a trailer down there? Or are you staying in a hotel? Or uh, I, I'm pretty fortunate. I, I got a, growing up there, I've got quite a connect, bunch of connections down there. I just stay with a buddy. Wow. All right, man. So this is it. Let's get into hunting a little bit. When did you start? How did it How did it go down growing up in Nevada? Um, well, I started just following my dad uh, probably around five, just deer hunting because uh, he didn't really even put in for elk tags in Nevada. So he would, you know, just hopefully he could draw a deer tag every year. So I would just be toting around with him. And as I got older, when I when you can hunt Nevada at 12 and I drew my first year and we, he always did backpack stuff and we didn't have, you know, we didn't have good gear. 
we were, I think I rocked a Jansport backpack for the first couple of years. Hell yeah. He didn't have, uh, he didn't do lightweight food. So we were doing canned food and, uh, sleeping on the ground, but yeah, shot my first buck at 12 and I was pretty much hooked after that. So when did you get into elk hunting specifically and tell us about your learning curve? I love learning about that as far as the ups and downs and kind of how it went for you. Yeah. So that was probably 2005 ish, 2006. I uh, got an invite to go to an Idaho elk camp. And, uh, yeah, it's probably 2005, and I went just to tag along. And they told me they were going to shoot these bulls with these bows, and I was I was laughing. I was like, "You ain't going to even get close," but I'll go. So we went up, and my very first morning, the very first encounter we had, this bull was pushing some cows up, and I was just following, just seeing what these guys were doing. And we're on this trail. And they let off a couple cow calls, and this bull turned to come right to us, pushing these cows. And this calf came up, and buddy of mine was kneeled down on the trail, and this calf came up within like six inches of his bow. And this bull came up behind him pushing cows, and nobody ended up getting a shot. And then I went home that that after that trip, and I bought my first bow on the way home. Did you really? Out of sportsman's. Yep, out of sportsman's. <laughs> okay. You just rolled in, said, I'll take that, and they set it up, and you were on your way. So 2006 was your first year archery elk hunting? Yep. Okay. How'd it go down? Oh, that one, well, I got pretty lucky. Uh, my whole hunting career for elk's been pretty pretty blessed. I shot every day from the time I bought that bow. I shot that entire next year and just kind of read as much as I could about calling, watched a lot of Paul Medell's stuff that he had out. And went up to elk camp three days before my dad and my uncle were going to get there. And I was just talking crap the whole time. I'll be like, when you guys show up, I'll probably have one on the ground. And I went up the first morning, didn't have any idea what I was doing. Just heard some bugles in the dark, started walking up in the dark and was chasing them. Not really having any strategy and just kept falling and falling and falling. I was calling and didn't know which call, what to do. They just kept going away and away, and I just kept following them. And then finally they shut up, and I just sat there and was eating some uh, lunch, and it was probably about 11, and I was just I was thinking, well, that didn't work out. I'm just going to practice bugling, I guess, and threw out one bugle. And I didn't know it at the time, but that herd bull had bedded his cows just right below me. So I threw out a bugle. He bugled back. I threw all my lunch on the ground, ran down 200 yards, and threw out another bugle, and he came right to me, and I shot him my first morning. Good Lord. So you got super spoiled. Uh, stars aligned. Uh, you're solo, right? Yep. yep. Okay. So did you, I mean, did you know what you're doing, breaking a bull down solo? Uh, not a bull, but I'd done a lot of deer before, and it's just an oversized deer. Yeah, it is. That's exactly right. Okay. Did you have to pack the whole thing out solo? Yep. Yep. Uh, I've never I've never hunted with uh, anybody before elk hunting. I've always done solo, pack them solo shoot them solo that's all you know why do you go solo mostly i it comes down to i'm just stubborn and i really don't want to ask somebody else what their opinion is and i think you can uh, you can cover ground faster you have less scent the the only cons i can find from hunting solo is you you're by yourself so when you get one on the ground the work is quadrupled okay i couldn't agree more i like to hear that you're solo and successful out the gate um well, then how did it go from there from 2006 on? Same, pretty much same result every year. I just kept getting, kept getting lucky, 
and the bull started getting a little bigger and that kind of about four or five years of it, I kind of figured out, like kind of get started getting my own routine, the style of calling I like to do, the places that I like to hunt to get away from, you know, get away from the crowds, kind of learned like where the bulls were getting pushed when people started showing up. I've always been more towards the earlier season, earlier part of the season to kind of stay away from the people. I think the 14th is the the latest I've ever even killed a bull. Okay, yeah, you real early. Do you guys open up on the, in late August or early September? I think it's the 30th, August 30th. Okay, and then let's get into your tactics and how they've evolved and kind of what you've honed on. Take us through your routine in the mountains. I mean, we're diving in right away. We're going for it. All right, yeah, right off the bat, I just start, I just locate bugle the whole time. I don't, I just locate bugle, and once I hear, get a bugle, I really try to pay attention to right off the bat, the very first time he bugles, and what, like, what he's kind of telling you, you know, if he's got his cows, if he, if it sounds like he's by himself, if you, you can kind of judge, like, what, what his mood is, maybe what kind of size he might have, and then I just go off of that. As soon as I get him to call, I'll try to get him to call one more time after that to maybe see if his mood changes. And then after that, I just check the wind and then I just go from the wind and go after him and then try to get in close. So once I located him, I will try not to call again until I'm close, really close, as close as I think I can get. I don't want to let him know that I'm coming. I don't want him to have you know any reason if he does have cows to maybe want to push his cows away i know some guys will like cow call in but i've i've had problems i think those cows the ones i've been with they don't really want more competition so even cow calls i've had them you know the lead cow she'll just start moving the whole herd and he's not just going to stay there and wait for one cow so he'll just start following them and then you've got the whole chasing game going yeah and so Tell us about the terrain you're in. I'm trying to vision, like, what kind of country, what's the terrain looking like? It's all steep, steep stuff, all really thick trees, underbrush. I don't even wear binoculars. Okay, yeah, so you're not glassing. It's all vocalization. Yep, yep. I've never I've never killed a single bull yet without calling it in. Yeah, I like that. And then you think these bulls are with these cows August 30th, or you think they're nearby cows, or is it just change year to year? Yeah, it changes and the temperature. Most of them, oh, I'd say probably half the elk I've ever shot didn't ever even had cows with them. All the big, bigger stuff I've shot, only one of them even had a cow. I get them early enough, like the fifth and sixth and seventh of September when they're just still out, kind of looking around. You know, I've heard and I've read, and I probably agree with this, but I want your take. Like bachelor group up. I don't know about you, but I'd say like anywhere plus or minus three days from August 15th, most bulls are going to rub, take that velvet off. Testosterone mm-hmm. levels are high enough. And once that velvet's off, we're no, we're no longer bros for the most part, especially those bigger dogs. They're mm-hmm. going to peace out and they, they're going to head somewhere. And it's almost like staging ground before they get to their breeding ground. And I feel like that's when they're pretty susceptible. Is that what you are seeing? Like, are we literally describing... You're getting on these because you've killed some big bulls. Are these bulls just kind of like halfway between summer and breeding grounds, just staging and filling their oats, so to speak? Yep, yep, that's exactly what I found. They once they rub off, they they almost turn into a muley. The ones I found, they'll go to they'll have their little spots that they like to go to right in between that time period, 
and they they do a lot of rubbing there they do a lot of bugling there they they don't have to go far for food and water so they can come right back to them same beds that's only the really time i ever that time of year when i see elk using the same beds like pretty consistently is right there in that transition period what's the window on that if you had to average all your seasons like what do you think that window like is oh i'd say maybe eight to ten days okay and so if your season starts august 30th you're pretty much counting on that transition zone until about the sixth Mm -hmm. okay so once september 6th ish rolls around how do you change your tactics then a little bit as far as okay homeboys are, are looking for cows actively or homeboys have scooped up cows um maybe some of the younger bulls have got the cows and the big boys are going to move in what are we looking at that that yeah that's kind of i kind of go into really aggressive around the sixth or seventh is where i would just start turning it up i i bugle hard go right after them don't really even if one bugles at me and i bugle back i'm already moving every time i make a call i'm going right at him so i'll cover i'll bugle and if he's 200 yards away and i he's bugled at me and i bugle back at him i'll try to cover that 150 yards in you know, under a minute. Okay. So once you close that 150, is, are you waiting for him to make his first sound? Or are you going to just start raking or are you going to th- immediately just challenge him? Or are you waiting to kind of cut up, cut him off and go over the top? Like what's that look like? Yeah. I, yep. I go right into raking. Um, I'll try to not, I don't, I try to use raking a lot just so, you know, he, he I think they're more willing to come into that raking and it helps them to, to rake. And once you can get them raking, they usually like to start raking and then keep raking for a couple of minutes. So then I can use that raking time to get in, slip in on them. I've shot a couple of them doing that where they just, I've shot two or three of them where they're still raking the tree. So once I got into 50 yards, I just start raking, raking branches and he starts raking and they're going to rake for, I've had some of them rake for so long. I, I couldn't even believe they kept doing it. Yep. It's like, they're almost like building up their confidence and it's yep. such a crutch. It's Achilles heel for them. That's when you slip in. So from one solo elk hunter to another, I hate to talk about this, but I got to be real with y'all. Um, Colin solo, there's a lot of like, make your last sound, but then move up 20, 30 yards. You, you kind of take the place of a caller and a shooter and you got to be slippery. And unfortunately, part of the deal is bulls come in right at you. And then when they yep. come in right at you, you're talking frontal. And when you're talking frontal, it's controversial. I don't promote it. I don't condone it. But I'm just going to be real. Several bulls have died from me shooting them in the frontal because I know where to put it given this, you know, and it's not my first choice. It's not my second choice. But I imagine you've killed a few frontal. Yep. Yep. When did you kind of understand that that was going to be effective for solo hunting but also like where do you draw the line in the sand for those that are like oh frontal that sounds cool like let's be real the good and the bad and where you draw a line in the sand what you're looking for well the frontal i didn't even think was ever an option i grew up you know getting told you know broadside behind the shoulder right the money shot well when you start calling solo you don't get that broadside money shot hardly ever mm-hmm. so the first year I was, uh, well, no, it'd been the second year I called in two or three bulls just right off the bat. They come running in. One of them came in five yards, perfect frontal. I was full draw on them and had no, at that, you know, at that time I thought I had no shot. So I ended up getting a different bull later on, just a broadside. Well, then the next year I kind of, you know, 
researched this frontal thing and heard a couple guys were doing it, where to start aiming for, what to look for. And then the next year I was through that in the bag of tricks and I, I kept it to 10 yards. Then I had to be 10 yards or in. And the next year I shot my first frontal at, it was nine yards and that bull didn't go 10 yards. Yep. He turned around, tried to run away, tripped over some deadfall and piled up right there. I couldn't believe it. And then <laughs> since then, I, I probably cap. I don't think I've ever, I probably wouldn't take that past 20. And a lot of the brush country I hunt, you wouldn't really, you wouldn't have a shot past 20 anyway. Yeah, I feel you on that. And I, I'm a huge fan of the frontal for solo elk hunters with experience who've, I guess, who have cut up elk before, kind of looked and studied the rib cage, the sternum, the shoulder bone, the scap, the muscle, just the, the how they're built. Because there is nothing going to stop that arrow in a frontal if you have the right angle. There's like nothing going to stop it. But if you do shoot too low, your arrow's going to be, <laughs> you ain't going through the sternum. Ain't nobody's no, arrow going no. through the sternum. So it's tough, but I mean, solo, I still get a lot of broadside shots. I'd say I've killed majority broadside, but almost all those are like non-vocalization interactions sneaking in, which is mm -hmm. honestly my preference. But so out of all the bulls you've killed, you kill a lot of herd bulls. How many of those have you called in versus sneaking in? Oh, probably half of them. Yeah. Most of them now, my patience has gotten a little better in my older age where normally I would have already taken a frontal shot. Now I can just stay there full draw and kind of let him, they'll, you know, he's doing that searching thing where he knows you're there, but he can't find you. And so then he'll start to get nervous where back, you know, 10 years ago, I would have already a shot. So I'll let him kind of get nervous and then he'll, do, he'll see, he'll stomp that leg and do that wanting to turn thing. And then I might have to hit him with a cow call, but then I've got a, a better shot. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about learning to not shoot and letting that really play out. Now, Which is very hard to do. It comes with reps. And I don't yep. know, I mean, for me it happened when I started, you know, I used, usually get in two tags a year. And I'd always kind of get that first one knocked down. And then it's like, okay, the second one will be pickier. Those were the days that really taught me like, okay, the bullet 40, the bullet 36, the bullet 29. All three of those I would have shot if, if I hadn't killed an elk yet. But holy crap, he's, he made it all the way to 16. Look how close, and he gave me several broadside shots and I knew I wasn't going to shoot him. It's, it's cool that way, but man, herd bulls are tricky in Idaho. They're, they're tricky anywhere, but really in that brush country, there's something, it's tough to get them killed. Yeah, it's tough. You have to, it's all about getting, is you have to be super close. You know, a lot of guys go with that 80 to a hundred yard. You're in the red zone where I hunt. 80 yards isn't even close. That bull, you can do everything you've ever read. That bull will take his cows and leave if you're at 80 yards. Challenge him. He, you're not even in his ballpark. Yeah, so what is his uncomfortable zone where he's like going to do something about it? I uh, For me, it's you get 50 or 40 yards, and you better have one of his cows pretty close to you that he can see. Okay. Do you have any herd bulls that don't run with cows? Any herd bulls that just kind of steal cows when they're in heat and they kind of just own the drainage so to speak oh i've had i've had one i called him uh psycho and he he owned me i was the one it was, a, was the first year i didn't fill a tag and i got on him uh probably the second day of a 21 day hunt and he gave me the slip that day and i got on him five other times that in those 21 days i got him five other times three times at full draw 
and he never had a cow. And he just, he was smart. He would skirt the herd, but he would never join the herd. I never heard, he didn't really bugle a lot. He, he was tough. And he ended up getting shot the next year by a guy from Arkansas. Excuse me? What? Yep. yep. With a bow? Arkansas, with a bow, and he'd never even elk hunted before ever. He watched him go into a, uh, and I only, I know the story because I ended up talking to the guy and scoring it for him. But he, he ended up watching it go out of a meadow up this trail, and he had never, it was his first day there, he'd never elk hunted, so, and he's a whitetail guy, so he went and put a tree stand up right at that trail, and I guess that bull walked right down right at dusk, walked right down that exact same trail, and he stuck him with an arrow. That's badass. I'm not going to lie, I'm not even, I'm impressed. No. Oh, I was, I couldn't believe it. So 383 inch bull. In Idaho. Yep. Dude from Arkansas. Never, yep, never shot a bull a day in his He'd never even seen an elk. Dude, mad props to that guy. That's just, crazy. Yeah, just the gumption to hold it together on a bull like that it was Seriously. impressive for me. Yeah, keep your, wow, keep your cool and execute. Now, did he, like, bring a climber in, or did he, like, haul ladders and all this other stuff? Like, no, yeah, he hauled ladders and everything. It took him all day. He watched it in the morning going into bed down and spent three or four hours getting that thing set up. Dude. I mean, I'm not even mad. I'm like impressed. I'm so Yeah, that's how I was. I told him when I shook his hand, I'm like, I've been after this bull for a long time. I probably have 50 trail cam pictures of him. And he let, I got to score him, you know, hold him. I got some pictures with it. I was like, good job, man. Good job. Wow. That's really cool. So speaking of cameras, do you run a lot of cameras in your areas? Uh, no, not really. I probably do. I'll do four or five, you know, in the summertime, we'll go do some camping trips with the family at elk camp and I'll run away during the middle of the day and go put some cameras up, but just to kind of, you know, see what's in the area, what made it through. Yeah. I really don't go too much off cameras though. I mean, it's nice to kind of get inventory. Do you leave them up year round or just pull them before season or? I pull them. Yeah. Okay. So scouting wise do you have to learn new areas each year or do you just learn your area even better like how's that how's your evolution on your spots i kind of just just you know expand my area really like i started off on one mountain range and probably the first two or three years on that one mountain i i probably only hunted four or five of the canyons but i got really lucky that those you know four or five canyons that had elk in them because nowadays i'll cover Oh man, I'll go, I'll hunt one morning on one mountain and be the next morning, 60 miles away on a completely different mountain just to try to find a bugle. Yeah. So now I just, every year I kind of, I'll usually I have a pretty good game plan every year. I'm going in with like an A, B, C, D and a plan for, I, I almost have every day planned out if something's not working, but I'll try to throw in like one spot on the map. I'll be like, okay, if things are really, really slow and nothing's really going on, I'm going to go try this random area for a day and see and i've found some of my best spots have been like that just a random i'm gonna spend this whole day at this spot i've never been to and i go in there and it's like jurassic park what is your system for backpacking bivvying spiking base camping out of your truck what do you usually do during the season i'll go and set my camp trailer up for so i have a base camp where i can come back if well like this year i mean you had somewhere to dry all my clothes every day and then if I get on a bull or a big group of bulls that are, you know, where I don't want to drive an hour every day to go to, I usually keep a nice, like, uh, 
bivy type sack in my truck so if i have to that night if i get out real, real late in the dark i can just sleep at the truck got some rations in there and then if it's big enough i've i've done some couple where i've been in there at night i keep my sleeping bag and my tent with me and if i'm on something big enough and i'm four or five miles in there i'll just find a spot and throw it up and that's where i'm sleeping that night what tent? But i try to make it back yeah, I'm with you on that because being mobile is so important. I think that's, I think that's not stressed enough. Is like, yeah, the backcountry is sexy, and I'm I'm all about it. Like if you're in a couple areas where it's an hour and a half in and an hour and a half out, I I promote backpack hunting in there because I think you're less likely to start working your way out, you know, an hour before dark, whereas you can stay with the elk until you can't see your pens anymore and. Yep then you can just go find a place to crash. Um, because when you hike all the way back to the truck, you get there late, you got to get dinner, you got to get your food for the next day, do it all your due diligence. And then you got to get right back up super early and you just don't get as much sleep or whatever. But what do you run for a tent and a, and a sleeping pad and a bag in your hunting pack? So you have that option. Uh, I just run the Kuyu, the Kuyu single man and just, uh, uh, I don't even know what brand of sleeping bag I have. I run just the like the XO 2000 pack, so it's pretty small. You're not getting a whole lot. Of, you know, I mean, you're not gonna be able to do multiple multiple days in it. I just got enough. Just if I need to spend the night, I can. A lot of times, I I mean that doesn't happen. I might do one night every two years, but if it like if I get on some new elk and it's dark, and I, I usually I won't leave before before it gets dark dark. If I'm on elk, I like to listen and, you know, kind of feel just not even just sit back and listen and see who's talking to who and, you know, who's establishing dominance and which ones are the satellites. So if I'm going to come back in there the next morning, I want to be able to tell when I when I hear a bugle, I want to be able to tell which bull it is, if that was the herd bull and which and if I hear a satellite, then I'll know there's more satellites around. And that kind of depends so I can work that herd however however many satellites they have. No, that makes sense, and I get that. Do you think majority of your elk have been killed in the evening, midday madness, or mornings? Oh, I'm I'm morning. Most of them are before eight thirty. Okay, so you're like on them before they're jamming to their beds, or you're getting oh, them yeah. in transition. No, I'm usually not even in transition. I'm usually on them before they're even wanting to go. So, to order to do that, you have to leave pretty early, and you have to know where they're at. So are you, is that part of like listening at night and kind of like figuring out where they're headed to go feed for the night? And then you just make sure that you're in that general area before first light. Yep. Yep. I do. If I'm on a good bull and one, I know I want to shoot. If I, if I find him that night before and I don't have enough time to get on him, I'll, I'll, I'll walk out of there. I've walked out three or four miles. And then at one o'clock in the morning, I'll walk back in there and just listen and if nothing's going on i might throw out just a bugle and listen and then they'll it'll kind of get them ramped up again and then i'll walk back out again just to make sure that they stayed in there nothing's pushing them because where i hunt there's wolves so i i mean if you if they get in there that they could be gone and i don't want to waste i mean everybody you put a lot of time into it and it's a short season if you waste one morning that could be the one morning that you got it done yeah and and i know that and i i get that that just sounds legitimately pretty tough to be at base camp 
and wake up at one, jam into your spot, and then not stay until first light. So you're literally hike in, hike out, and then hike back. All yep, in, yep. In, okay. Um, it can't be that far from your base camp then. Uh, no, no. My base camp is, I keep it pretty, well, my trailer, I keep where I'm, it's going to be within two or three miles of where I'm going to be parking the truck to go in every day. Yeah, I like that. Um, so when it comes to Idaho and kind of just like what you've seen since 2000. Six, how has the elk hunting changed, and how has it stayed the same? Um, well, the wolves have uh, they did their thing, so that kind of changed really for me. I think uh, how they react, and you know, they're getting smart. They're trying to stay alive, so they'll just I think act a little different. And I, the hunting pressure in the last just three or four years has gotten crazy, crazy, crazy. You almost have to hunt the hunting pressure more than you do the elk. Yeah, no, and how, how how have you done that? How do you navigate that? Uh, I don't go in trailheads ever, and I just, I'll let people kind of do their thing. If I hear a guy bugling and he's on elk that I want to get on, I just won't even go that direction. I just go completely away from people, and you, you'll figure it out on, you know, if you know your mountain range good enough you know where the people, they're going to be on the trails. They're not really going to want to go real far off them. They're going to hike into a certain spot every day and hike back out. And then you just learn where the elk go to avoid them. And that's where I go. It's, there's no, you might have game trails in there, but there's no, there's no foot traffic trails. And I, I mean, I got a couple canyons that you won't even see elk in unless there are a lot of people show up. And once the people show up, the elk just funnel in there and I never see people in there. Like this year I had five bulls in that one Canyon and it's not even a quarter mile across and they were in there for days. That's really good advice guys finding out their escape routes and kind of their little areas to seek refuge when that pressure starts heating up. I mean, I, I experienced the same thing in Idaho, man, this is the most people I've ever seen in, almost 20 years of elk hunting and uh i was like baffled i i just um i couldn't believe it the other thing that i ran into specifically like units one through nine panhandle was like there's no like enforcement on gates anymore there used to be and it was kind of cool like everybody parked at a gate that was your trailhead Mm -hmm. and there's now, there's always a four-wheeler trail that goes skirts around the gate, no matter what, no matter how many Kelly humps or what the loggers do. And then a lot of the gates are being left open. And that's a problem where I hunt, it's just too many gosh darn roads. And so I'd say it's a culmination of, yeah, there's wolves and they suck for sure. Um, there's a lot more tags being sold, although I think Idaho is going to do something about that. Um, yep. I think they can get rid of the two tag deal. That would affect me i've always bought two tags but i'm okay with just killing one bull in idaho and then just the gates and the roads there's just so much access that there's people that i hope somebody takes offense to this but in my opinion there's people hunting places that they just don't deserve to hunt that because i know they could never do it the right way and hike all the way in and hike out or camp in they just wouldn't do it and they're getting there via a motorized vehicle of some sort so um access how's access where you hunt it's, it's not as bad. It, I mean, it's all, a lot of the guys, you know, they're hunting those old logging roads with the, with the gates in front of them, but they really don't go off those roads. Uh, you know, those guys are just getting back in there on, they'll ride bikes back in there and 
uh, from what I found, if they don't hear a bull bugle within a mile of that trail, they're, they're not even going to stray off of it. I'd like to dive into like how you've kind of, how you approach each drainage now that you have all the, you know, you have several probably double digit areas that you know that will produce and areas where elk will go when pressured. I need to know how much time will you spend in a drainage before you're like, I got to put these elk on ice or is that not a thing you pound it every day because it's just you? How do you do that? Oh yeah, no, I do all morning. If I don't get it done in there in one morning, I probably won't come back for, uh, and if I'll go other places and if I'm hitting elk other places, I will never come back. Yes. Okay. So you're big on that as well. Just bouncing and staying mobile and not pounding the same elk day in, day out. Nope. Yep. Cause I've already gave him, I either passed, you know, passed the bulls that were in there or I gave them, you know, my, my playbook and they didn't like it and they're, they already know what I'm going to do. So I just go somewhere else. Yeah. Do you think that the elk, once they hear and recognize your bugle, that that's like, that's your day, that's your morning to get it done. And then your odds significantly, significantly decrease from there. Oh, absolutely. Cause okay. I, I've heard bulls call to each other. Like I was on a bull this year, he would not respond to any bugle except for this little buddy of his that was down the Canyon. And that was the only bull he'd talk to. There was another guy across from me. He was bugling and there was another bull in there bugling, but he would only call back to that one other bull. Yeah, I think that's going to be more and more common. And and I don't know why, but I think it's just a like we talked about before, these elk are changing their behavior a little bit. They're going to they're going to do what it takes to stay alive. So, do your elk winter a long ways away from where you're hunting them? Oh yeah, yep. Okay. Probably Oh, I'd say the closest winter in range they even have a chance for is 50, 75 miles. Wow. Wow. Okay. Do you find sheds in that area or do they drop them on their way to back to their summer grounds? And Usually grounds? on the, it's on the way. It's about the halfway points where the sheds are going. Are you one of those shed hunting kind of guys? Yep. Yep. I'm hunting 365 days a year, horns, bears, deer, whatever it takes to keep in the mountains. Yes. Back at home, what does mama bear think about all the hunting you do since she doesn't want a lot to do with it? Like, where do you draw the line on, on too much hunting and, and where do you know to kind of make sure that she's included and that you're being intentional and, you know, making that marriage work? Um, I try to involve them in, in every aspect of like the scouting, the, I mean, even as far as going to, if we're going to go up one day before the season starts and set the trailer up, I take the whole family to do that. I mean, they come up during the season even, and I might come out, like if they're going to come up on a weekend and be at camp on a weekend, I might come out like on a Sunday morning, maybe come out a little bit early and just hang out with them at camp the rest of that day before they got to go back to school. Just try to make time everywhere I can. And just, I think a lot of guys where they mess up is they're not telling them the whole plan. And you got to, you know, if you're going to do five weeks, you got to tell them this is what's going to happen. And if, if you're not okay with that, I need to know that now. And me and my wife did that early on. And she knows that I, I mean, guys like me and you, I work out every single day and not to look good for a picture. It's for the mountain for that to hunt. Oh, I work she, out to look good for a picture. Yeah. <laughs> I'm playing. No, that's cool that you, we're, God, I'm glad you, you got two things that got me stoked. You, you're, I know you're a diehard bear hunter. We're going to go into spring bear hunting. That's like my second passion. Oh, com- yeah. Compared to fall elk. But, uh, and then training and all that stuff is super important. Your wife's a fitness coach. So, what's yeah. that fitness lifestyle going on in your household? 
Oh, well, if you pick up a donut in my house, you're going to probably hear about it. If you can even get one through the door. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. You got the food. Yeah, the food Nazi. Every once in a while, yep. I'll grab something out of the pantry that's for the kids. And she'll just look at me like, September's a month away. You want that? I'm like, I'll put it back. Yeah, no she doubt. She keeps me honest. So what does she coach? What does she do? She is a coach at Orange Theory Fitness. Okay, yeah, those things are popping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. One of my hunting buddies actually owns a couple here in Spokane. Uh, he's a stud. So do you do Orange Theory too, or do you just go to a regular gym? What do you do? I just go to a, a, a regular gym, just a Gold's that has kind of like a, you know, like a CrossFit style room in it. And I just kind of do my own thing, just high intensity CrossFit style stuff. How long have you been doing that? Um, since I heard of CrossFit. Okay. I, I used to do mainly, you know, like that, that weightlifting type of training and, w- and I do a lot of cardio. I run, I run, I don't know, probably anywhere from 40 to 60 miles a week. But then I never really found like, you know, I'd always be lacking in some areas when I was doing that type. And then once I started doing this, I'd probably been doing this for over, I don't know, eight, eight or 10 years. And it's just, I never really have any flaws anymore. Like I don't get gassed ever. And it just, it's been working pretty good. No, I think that's legit. Uh, you walk into your functional space inside the Gould's gym tomorrow morning. How do you decide what to do? Do you follow a program? Do you kind of go off uh, like a hierarchy of weaknesses to tackle? Like, give us an idea what you're going to do tomorrow. It, well, a lot of it depends. You know, it's pretty popular in there. So it'll depend on kind of what area is open where a body's not at. But uh, I'll just, I run to the gym and home from the gym every day. So I run there and then I'll, go into probably, you know, like I'll probably do multiple movements at the, at the same time. So like a, a circuit kind of, so I'll just do power cleans, go right into from power cleans into like say box jumps. And then from that go right into pull-ups and then just cycle that five or six sets of that and then get three more different things and just do that. And I just try to stay in there for about an hour and just go as hard as I can for about an hour and then run home. Okay. I'm assuming this gym is in Idaho Falls. Yep. So what the hell do you do when you're in Nevada? Uh, just go to a different gym. I go to work. So I leave. This is where it gets difficult. And you find out who's got dedication with underground mining. Because I work with guys that they work out, but they can't do it while we're working. Because we'll leave the parking lot at 5 o'clock in the morning and not get home to the parking lot till 6.30 or 7 at night. And then I go back home, I run to the gym, I do the same workout that I would do if I was on my days off, and then I get home, and it's 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, and go get some food, go right to bed, and do it all the next day. And this is all in the name of elk hunting? Yep, every bit of it. Are you a real person? Yeah. Yeah. Man, this is cool, I feel like... um... It's just nice to talk to somebody so like-minded. Your priorities are just kind of all direct in the same direction. Um, let's get into spring bears, man. How long have you been doing the Idaho spring bear game? Uh, the same, as soon as I started grabbing a bow. Okay. Same time frame. I've killed quite a few bears in my day. I'd say it's split down the middle between spot and stock and over bait. And I would say that the older I get and the longer I've been doing it, I'm finding it harder and harder to kill mature bears over bait. I've been pretty much spending more and more time away from the bait sites. I still love baiting. I love being really close to bears. I love watching bears. Like it's just never gotten old. I just am fascinated by them. But um I'm curious to be your situation like where are you at on bear harvest and 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 how is that split up between spot and stock and baiting? I've done all mine over a bait. 
I just, I'll set it up, uh, April 15th, just set it up. And I mean, I don't do nothing really fancy, just a barrel with, I just pop popcorn in a, you know, a turkey fryer. That's the cheapest way I've found so far to keep bait running. And I'll, I'll get 200 pounds of kernels, uh, from the store and just pop popcorn takes about 10 or 12 hours to pop it all and just start hauling that in. And with my schedule, it's kind of hard to bait. Mm-hmm. So I got to have a bunch of bait when I go back to work. Cause I've had some years I've had 12 or 15 different bears hitting that thing. And I'll come back on my first day off and go up to the bait and it's done. It's dried. Haven't had a bear there for a day. And that really hurts if you're trying to kill a big bear. It's hard to pattern them as it is. And then if your bait runs out, you're in trouble. So also I'll just run that popcorn and I've went to a, uh, like a sucker, like a, a little sucker that I use, a I make out of a, like a, a one gallon paint can with a chain, an eye bolt with a chain hook to the tree, just in case I found that kind of helps them. If you run out, that'll help them coming back. Do you make that sucker yourself? Yep. How do you do yep. that? I just YouTubed it actually. How to? I I run some Boremasters uh, scent, and so I'll just I uh, YouTubed how to make a, a sucker, and you just have to multiply the ingredients times like a hundred, and just add that in there. And I just dump, keep dumping it in. It takes probably four or five batches to make a a gallon's worth, and you just put it in that paint can and let it get hard. Okay, I'm like I'm trying that. I love that idea because yeah, you need something. Um, so when you haul this bait barrel in, is it on your back? Is it off a four-wheeler? And then you chain it to a tree. So how much popcorn can you fit in that sucker? And then do you leave popcorn on the ground? Do you, like, go through that set that setup? Yep. So I that's one of the reasons I went to the popcorn because I used to use dog food and just whatever I could find. And it's it's way heavier. It's a lot more work. And I was using my snowmobile to get it in before. But then, you know, there's some years where there's no snow. And I was spending a lot more money, so I went to the popcorn. And that popcorn, I can as far up as I can make it in the springtime with my truck. That that barrel is already filled from the truck, so I can pack that barrel filled to the brim with popcorn all the way up to my bait site. All right. And then, do you bring? Do you haul in extra bags and put them on the ground, or you just want the bears getting it out of the barrel? Um, initially, I'll do just the just the barrel, just to get the bears coming. And I'll, I'll kind of, you know, time it. It's usually two or three, probably two or three weeks before you have enough bears hitting it pretty steady where it's going to be hard to keep up. But then once that, once it, you're about a month into it, that's when I'll leave. When I go, like when I go back to work, I'll have the barrel will be filled and there'll probably be three 55 gallon trash bags worth of popcorn over top of the barrel, just surrounding it. And then I'll just throw deadfall all over it. Cause the, crows will have a heyday with your popcorn so i'll try to cover that as best i can to keep them off for a couple days and then you just cross your fingers every time it's a good and a bad thing when you come back and all your bait's gone you know it's getting hammered but then you know there's a bunch more work involved and you got to pop more popcorn no doubt i gotta look into this turkey fryer thing man i think i have one oh it's simple it's just some vegetable oil and you put, you got to, it takes a little bit to get your mixture down, right? You got to put the vegetable oil in first. If you don't have enough, it'll burn your popcorn. If you have too much, it takes twice as long to pop the popcorn. But once you get your, your mixture down, it, I mean, it goes pretty quick and it's, it's light and cheap. 
I like the weight of it, man, because I've been using everything, but I get uh, a ridiculous amount of donuts, and one of my homies owns a pizza crust factory, so he will give me more than I can take there, and that stuff's heavy, and yep. we get we've gotten pretty aggressive on our baiting program where we'll go once or twice a week, but I'm still trying to figure out how to bait once like my buddy Russ Myers, where he literally hauls in with horses, 2000 pounds of bait once. And then he's not back, uh, in that area, no trail camera, none of that. He's got some glassing points he can slip into. And so when he goes to kill the bear, he's picked out, it's really never been hunted. It's never smelled dudes. And, it's pretty much game over. That, um, yeah, that's that's a good system right there. I know. I'm still trying to evolve that, but um, I'm I'm thinking 2020. I'm only going to do one bear bait, not three, uh, and it's going to be in on my way to some of my spot and stock grounds, so I can always hit that on the way out in the evenings because evenings are obviously your best time to kill bears. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I would say 90% of the bears I've killed over bait have been the last 30 minutes of daylight. The bigger, mature bears, they just know that that dark, the sunset, and they can get away. Like they can just be concealed, and you'll see them. They just materialize out of nowhere in that lighting. And uh, yep, I like that idea of kind of baiting your bait and then continuing on up the mountain, get into your spot and stock ground, hopefully get a stock in or two. If it doesn't pan out. On your way out, you just pull up, get slip into your stand, game on. So do you have a station that you bait every year? It's this is like where I'm putting my bait. Yep. Every year I've never I've never put it anywhere else. I've had them I've had the bears show up before the season even started and I'll get there and there'll still be snow on the ground and they've already been around clawing at the ground, scraping trees and it and don't even have a bait up yet. So they've probably built some pretty cool little bear trails leading to your bait, including ones that circle and get the wind. Oh yeah. Yep. So well, how- and that's the key. I think we're a lot, cause I get asked this a lot for, you know, a lot of people will ask, how do you get into bear hunting and f- a, finding a bear spot? I think is the, is the key. Cause 100%. that wind is you have to know when your wind changes, what it's going to do. I mean, the season in Idaho is two months long, and that wind does something different at the beginning of the season than it does at the end of the season. So you got to know all that, and you just got to find a spot. The, the spot is key. Like I have big deadfall behind me because I, I, I've shot all mine out of a ground blind. So I like to put my ground blind up against those that deadfall. So if one does want to come around and win me down below, He's almost got to go off this drop off, which they, they never do. So I've, I've never really even have one. They'll go about halfway, do like a half moon, like they're going to go around it and then realize there's no way to go. So then they'll just go back and kind of, they put their guard down and go right in. Dude. I love this. Um, bears are crazy. Like I tried this new spot last year, basically pretty slick setup in a Canyon where the bears typically hibernate. And I think you've probably found areas like that, or maybe your set's near one where there's some drainages where a lot of bears will hibernate in that drainage. There's just a bunch of places for them to dig holes in the ground, in the cliffs, whatever. It gets really good green fast. It's just a smart place to den up. It's a smart place to pop out of your den. And so I found one of those. 
And I've actually found bear dens in there and crawled in them and checked them out. It's cool. It's where my mother-in-law killed the biggest bear we've ever seen killed and all of the bears. So it's a really cool area. So I tried this one part where it's kind of cliffed out and I put a tree stand in there and dude, I could not believe it. But everywhere else in the canyon, the wind's pretty predictable. As soon as it sets, it starts jamming downhill. I kind of had my bait way off to my left. And I had it so my thermals were kind of going down over some cliffy stuff where you'd think a bear would never come, right? Mm -hmm. But, dude, I literally couldn't kill a bear out of that stand to save my life. For whatever reason, the wind vortexed right there. And no matter what time of day, including, like, last 20 minutes of shooting light, the wind would be jamming at a side hill, almost going up. There was no thermals there. And you would have never guessed that unless you actually been in there. And so it didn't take me long to, like, pull the plug on that spot. But, uh... I think finding a bear spot is very critical. I, I only have a few places that I've kept, and I'm always trying at least one new spot every year to see if I can find that one magical set where the wind is always going to be in your favor. My question for you is this. Uh, I've lost three ground blinds to bears, and so I no longer do ground blind set, setups for bears. How have you kept your ground blind intact? Uh, well, uh, zip ties. <laughs> no, um, I try to do, I have that back so they can't really come around the back. And then I've cut down some pretty good sized trees and built kind of like a perimeter in front of it. And then, so once I set my blind up, I'll go and find as much, you know, just branches, pine boughs, all kinds of crap. And I stuff it all around that thing. So if one, if, if one wanted to get in it, they're really going to have to work at it, which I, I found if you keep your bait full, they're really not going to want to do, you know, exert that much energy when they got food right there just to come figure out what's in this blind. So the only time I've really had it get messed with is when my bait runs out and then they get curious. And I, I had one bear, this sow, she was, you know, a little three and a half, four footer. And for some reason, whatever, she had something that she loved my ground blind. Every time I went to it, it was collapsed. And so I just kept setting it up, setting it up, setting it up. And then finally, I don't know, she disappeared the next year. I've never seen her since, and I've never had it happen ever again. But I've got, I got one, one blind just for, it's just for bear hunting. And it's got zip ties, duct tape. I've had to replace poles. <laughs> I mean, yeah, whatever dude. it takes. I think they just get bored. I think that's the bottom line is they've ran out of food and they come mess with my stuff. And yep. Um, big bears break stuff and so yeah i've lost three three blinds one which was my dad's he doesn't ever let me forget that and uh <laughs> they never do no nah, but that's yeah so i've gone elevated positions but i'm excited for spring bear always am it's a great time to be out in the woods minus ticks obviously you can do some spot and stock you can shed hunt you can find new areas to elk hunt i put out a lot of cameras for elk hunting a lot of that country overlaps April, May, June, you're out there with a backpack in the mountains, messing with thermals and shooting sharp sticks at animals. It's kind of an advantage. Idaho and Wyoming are the only two states that I know of that you can bait legally. I guess Alaska could be included in that, but very few states even have a spring season. I know Oregon does, but I think their seasons, I think their tags sell out real fast. I'd have to confirm that. Washington is a draw only, which is ridiculous. Montana's got a really good season. You cannot bait, though, and they have quotas, so you have to kind of watch that once a certain amount of females get killed. It's shut down. 
but I, I think out of all the places I've mentioned, I'd say that um, California, I don't think they have a spring bear season, but I feel like they got some of the highest densities of bears. Every, I've hunted there before, and I've seen more bears than anything. Your bear season, specifically the rut, do you kill your bears before the rut happens, or are you kind of stoked for the rut to get here to see who who you know who shows up yeah most of mine have been before the rut but the all my big ones have all been during the rut those big guys like you were saying they're that i mean i've had one bear he would come down and just sit 50 yards from the bait until it got too dark to shoot and then he'd feel comfortable and then he'd come down and i've stayed in the blind before just to be like all right when's he gonna show up and he'll sit there and wait till it got dark and then come down and then it ended up taking, I got him following a sow at about probably eight o'clock. He just come, she come trotting down and she'd been hitting the bait every day. And I'd see him the, just the day before that she came in and he was hot on her. So I had a pretty good idea that she was starting to come into heat. And I seen her coming down the mountain and I just started grinning. Cause I knew I was like, he's gotta be right behind her. And sure enough, he'd come right down. So I think if you want those big guys to get them to slip up, you're going to have to, you know, just like any other male species there, you got to get them when they're, when they're can't resist the females. Yep. I love it. No. So when is that time for you? Is it late May? Does it change year to year? Is it early June? What, what are the best dates in your, in your experience? Oh, uh, I think it changes year to year. Really. I think the weather has, has to have a lot to do with that. Cause where I, my bait's pretty high up on the mountain. Mm-hmm. It's at 8,200 feet. So, I mean, there's been years where the whole first month of the season, I'm sitting on top of snow and those, it seems like those years, the rut is really, really late. But right. if I can get there in the first week of the season and there's no snow on the ground, it's usually like the, the end of May, you know, it, once it gets to the twenties, it seems like they start following sows. I, I agree. I think that's, I've saw a couple years ago, we had a pretty mild winter. And that peak rut seemed like it was almost middle of June. Last year, I saw good rutting activity in the 20s, like 520 to 531. I put a lot of days into. Um, mm-hmm. And weather is really, I think weather's more critical for bear hunting than any other species. For example, uh, my buddy Mark Boardman from Vortex, Eric Barber, I took them on a bear hunt with me. And I pretty much was like, when they showed up, I'm just be like, okay guys i got like five baits out and you guys can shoot really far so we're gonna spot and stock and then just set baits in the evenings and i remember being like yeah you you can buy two bear tags in this one unit you you guys might want to buy two bear tags thank goodness they didn't we all got sunburnt that week it was like 70s and 80s (laughs) the first week in june in the mountains we literally i think we had like two bear sightings between four guys in a week of bear hunting. Conversely, they went home the next week I went out and the weather flopped, man. It was just nasty. It was cold. And I went to one Canyon and I had like six different bears and I didn't know which one to stock first. Um, and I ended up killing the first bear I made a stock on, but just night and day different. So cloud cover, cool temperatures, bears are going to be out. Yep. sun's out it's hot they uh they got not they want nothing to do with that hot weather early on absolutely nothing would you agree with that oh yeah absolutely to a t okay. and, and mine mine don't like rain yeah rain and it's rain. raining they're not coming into the bait and where i hunt man you're gonna get rain a couple times a week in the spring guaranteed so you have to be smart about when you go out and where you set up and stuff um 
Have you ever thought about trying spot and stock in that area? Is there any areas that um, you could peek around and check out? Um, not, not really. Where where I hunt, I you know I'm I'm in almost kind of some of my same elk hunting areas. So I'm in there trying to kill these bears to keep some of these elk calves alive. And there's not really there's a couple spots you'd almost have to know one's hanging out in there because you could glass maybe a hundred yard you know football type area, but there's only like two or three of those that are even there. While we're on predators, let's just run through kind of your experiences. So have you ever come across a calf killed while bear hunting? Oh yeah, you have. What was left of it? I mean, did you get there right after it got consumed? Uh, or? No, I, it was probably because I, I had been hunting the week prior, went to work. And then when I came back, it was it was right up right off the trail, walking up to my bait. And it was probably, I'd say, four or five days old. And it looked like the bear had done most of the work. And then just the, the you know, the birds and stuff had got to it. But there wasn't nothing left of it. Yep, I found a one. I dropped my buddy Santino off at his bait. We we came up this old skid, dropped him off, and I came back out, and there was a calf carcass in the middle of the road I had just been on 20 minutes ago, and it looked like it'd been there for several days. I was like, and it was just nothing left but hide. And I read a study that doesn't take, one of the reasons that they're, they had such a tough time figuring out bears were so hard on calves is because they can eat them so fast. They can mm-hmm. consume them quickly, but yeah, man, would you pass up veal if you had been wintering all year and you've just been eating grass and here's this veal waiting for you, like hot off the presses? No, it's no, nope. you can't. And I don't hate on bears as much as I do wolves. In fact, bears are some of my favorite animals just because they're so intriguing. Uh, they're so old. They live such a long time that you can really develop some history and and they they do so many different things, and they range so many different places on the mountains based on food sources. They're just I'm fascinated by them. Um, how about wolves? Have you had any wolf encounters while elk hunting? Uh, yeah, I haven't recently in the last couple years, but before that, I'd had I've been followed before. I've 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 been surrounded. I was calling an elk one day, and I threw out a bugle, and a wolf howled. When I was thinking, well, this elk's gonna shut up. Well, this elk keeps bugling. Mm-hmm. and he was working off into this drainage where I was going to go to anyway. And my dad was with me and I was, I told my dad, I'm, I'm going to try to call this wolf in. And he's all, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. So I just threw out a little coyote howl and these wolves covered probably 150 yards in 30 seconds. <laughs> and next thing I knew they're, they're all within 50 yards of us and they're surrounded us. And I was just, I had an arrow knocked and everything. And I was just getting ready to shoot one of them. And he, all he had to do was clear a tree, and they must have came around and got behind us. And as soon as that one got downwind, it kind of barked a little bit, and then they were just gone. Yeah, fascinating. They're brilliant animals. They yeah, really they're are. Very, very smart. And now, now if I, I seen one probably two years ago from the truck, and as soon as my truck came to a stop to even, I, I was just going to get out and glass it, and it was gone. Yeah, they're they're getting smarter. That's cool that you experienced that and. It is cool to hear them. I'm not going to lie. They, it's, no, it's really cool it's to hear them. It's an intimidating sound. It, it's crazy. And you're lying if you're not intimidated a little, just because there's so no. many of them. Um, yep. And they sound kind of spooky. But uh, what about grizz? you have to deal with grizz where you elk hunt? Oh, yeah. Yep. They're, they're in there pretty thick. Uh, I just pack a I pack bear spray and a 44 mag. And you just got to be on your toes. And, I mean... You almost you, the mental toughness part of it is the hardest part because you don't you don't see them very often, 
but you're constantly thinking about them. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, you should be because they're in there and you just got to be ready. You got to have an idea of run. Like I, I take that the same as I do elk hunting. And I run through scenarios constantly all day long through my head. Like, well, okay, what would I do if this happened? What, what am I going to do? Am I going to move? Like what move am I going to make? You just got to be smart. Try to, I think bears, you know, grizzlies, especially they're pretty lazy and they like to stay on the trails and I don't really hike on trails very often. So I really don't run into them. The only, the only, even the only tracks I ever see, usually they're on really nice trails and they don't like to stray off of them. I don't hunt grizz country. Now I've had a few on camera where I elk hunt consistently in Idaho, but they're not, there's just no densities, but I have hunted in grizz country. I've seen grizzlies while elk hunting uh, in Wyoming and stuff like that. Here's my deal. I want to know what do you, what's your thoughts on like what do you do with your food, your toothpaste, all that kind of stuff that has smells when you are staying out on elk? And then the other thing is, dude, you've killed a lot of elk and you're cutting them up solo. That's a lot of work and your head's kind of buried in your work. Where's that 44? Where's that bear spray? And how often are you looking over your shoulder? Well, so the 44 is on in a chest holster. So right where my binos would be. Okay. And... So it, it, I never take it off from the time I leave in the morning till I get back. That thing is never off my chest ever. And then as soon as I get a bull down, I, I try to get quick going quick. I don't gut them ever just for scent purposes. So I'll, I do it a little bit different than most people, you know, they'll work one whole side and then roll and do the other side. So I'll just do the rears first to try to get the, you know, the bigger parts of meat off. Cause I, and as soon as I get them off, I got to go down away from that bull i probably go a minimum of two or three hundred yards away from that elk and i build a meat rack and i get those bigger quarters hung up right off the bat and i don't cut them off the bone but i cut all the way down and around the bone and leave you know the the part towards the elbow there i leave probably six or eight inches of that hooked solid to the bone just to help that air get in there and then i go back and i just keep working my rest of my quarters and the whole time i just am pretty you got to be pretty aware of where the wind's going because that they're going to come from wherever the wind's blowing if they're going to get on that smell of that carcass so you just got to just come in and be be ready every time and once you get all your quarters and everything away from that pile i'm i'm never going back in there i don't i'm not going to go check to see you know because there is going to be a bear on it it's just a matter of time so i just don't even want to see one dude i think that's great advice so literally i would steal that play out of your book if i was in grizz country I would go two, three hundred yards into somewhere where I could see, you know, as I approached, you know, upwind of that meat, take the quarters off, get the biggest chunks of meat off first, get those shimmy down, hung up, what have you, and then get back to the carcass, make sure it's, you know, everything's in plain sight. So you have an there's no surprises. The last thing you want to do is be surprised by a grizz. And yep. then when you get back up there, you can rip that back strap and shrunt shoulders, neck meat, get the head off, get the hell out of there, and go stage it and do your first load out. What, how, what's the most loads you've ever done on an elk? Uh, four. I've, <laughs> I've, I've done them where I was feeling pretty uh, pretty wore out. Yeah. Uh, I got this buddy I work out with. He's kind of a hoss. He's a big boy, and uh, he killed his first elk with a bow this year. Congrats, Tim, in New Mexico. And I haven't told him this, but I don't know if I believe this story, but I've worked out with him and I've seen his power. So maybe I probably do, but he backpacked into a wilderness in New Mexico 
killed his first bull like on his second to last day and he had all his gear with him which is 40 50 pounds backpack hunting and he's like it wasn't that big of a bull and i'm just like whatever dude a bull's a bull like there's gonna be spikes a big animal dude yeah there's gonna be hundreds of pounds of meat here and so he says he he deboned everything and he said he took half of the elk out with his camp dropped it off hiked back into the wilderness and got the other half and the head and took it out two trips solo is he full of shit? I, I, I would, I could, I could probably believe that if he's a pretty good stout guy. He's a stout dude, man, and that's that's the deal. That's why you can't just run for conditioning for elk. No, no. You need some strength, nope. beef, power, and I'm like the least powerful guy. Like, you put me on any workout where it's power output, i.e., heavy ass power cleans and assault bike, or heavy sled sprints, man, and I'm I'm struggling. And that's kind of where I spend a lot of my time. Is because I'm pretty weak there relatively speaking and uh he, when we do a workout against each other and there's ever an assault bike that's a fan bike where it just expresses pure power it's not fair like he literally is he can get to 30 calories before i'm at 10 <laughs> you know what i mean it's just like annoying but yeah having power is good for packing out bulls mike dorning i want to meet you you're a cool dude you're out of yeah, idaho absolutely. falls uh you're a miner you're a family man you're an elk killer you're an outdoorsman uh, we already said it once, but where can people follow you on Instagram? Uh, it's just uh, at Dorning underscore grind. That's right. And you're married to Jonna? Yep. And you have three kids, 11. What's the other ages? Uh, 11, 9, and 7. And where are you at on hunting season? What's your next hunt? What are you looking forward to? Uh, right now, I've got uh, one more elk tag left. i got to go try to get a spike with a muzzleloader. And then after that, it's trying to get down on these predators this winter get a wolf killed god bless you um cool we'll stay on the line we'll chit chat our secret stuff that i always do with every guest sorry guys and uh you guys give him a follow and be like mike work hard hunt solo if you can and you know make no excuses communicate with your i think the things i learned the most from you was you know, communicate your plans up front to your spouse. Like, don't try to hide it. Be, just put your cards on the table. Include them as much as possible throughout the year so you can go do you. Um, get after those elk earlier than later. Be aggressive and keep finding multiple areas and learn areas where elk go when they're pressured. And get yourself a turkey fryer for popcorn. Lots of good information today, Mike. I appreciate you for your time. Guys, thanks for listening to the Elk Shape Podcast. Hey Elk Hunters, Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic, from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between. The University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, 
all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. Okay, that's a wrap. 100th episode in the bank. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, if you do the online Elk Shape Camp, you will get access to every camp we have done and every camp that we do. We are not letting that information out to the public via YouTube. That's all private videos. So if you're interested in seeing Aaron Snyder's backpack dump, Ryan Lamper's backpack dump, backcountry nutrition, calling sessions with Joel Turner, The Bugler, Dirk Durham, and Jason Phelps and others. All that content will be on the Elk Shape Camp online. And then if you do that, you get the discount code to the live. You can follow us. Our other content is on YouTube. That is where we put a lot of energy into technical archery and fitness. We have 90 Days to Freedom coming up in January 2020. Be on the lookout for that. That's gonna be a 90 day program to whip your ass into shape. And remember, I don't believe in periodization and building a foundation. I believe in general physical preparedness being ready to go elk shape style any day of the year. Stay in elk shape, don't get in elk shape. That's what we preach. I appreciate you guys listening to this one. You can follow us on Instagram and see what we're up to at elk shape or Facebook. Take care and have a great week. Make it happen for yourself. Peace.